Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Azure. This episode is sponsored by Solveto. Continuous learning is the driver for success, growth, and well-being. Learn or expire. Keep your Azure skills up to date. Act now by going to solveto.fi slash pro. My name is Tobias, and I'm back again with UC. What's up? Hey, Tobias. I think I haven't mentioned a project that I've been planning lately, and this is something I really haven't committed to just yet. But I think one day I will. And, and the idea for the project is that once I turn 55, uh, this is about 10 years from now, so I'm 45 now, that all of my possessions, all of the gadgets, the computers, the, the widgets, the things, that the, the stuff that I think I need, ideally, I would be in a, in a stage in life about 10 years from now that the stuff I need would fit in a big suitcase and a messenger bag. Uh, why? Perhaps to... Hold on, I need to stop you right there. <laughs> How do you fit an Azure data center into a suitcase? <laughs> I am not sure. Uh, so it would perhaps be a small Intel Nook computer and that would be it by then. Today, it's not that. Uh, and why, you might ask? To Well, well... Number one reason would be to sort of start building an inventory of stuff that I'm willing to let go of. Stuff that I have after to move that I sort of realize that, well, I don't really need this anymore. It was fine at the time, but I have no need for this today. But also to sort of kind of marry my way along of growing older. Do I really need those 25 USB memory sticks in the gadget box? Perhaps not. So I haven't committed to this just yet, but I'm playing with the idea. And sometime next year, I will go all in on this one and give myself nine years. So every year I will gradually get rid of stuff or then I'll go, well, I don't really care about this and I will continue as is. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I love this approach and minimalism is something that I strive for. And you may or may not see it in my home office. I. I try to keep things clean. My desk has nothing on it except for my my teacup and my mobile phone, and so obviously my keyboard and the mouse and the computer. But I I really love this idea of minimalism because one thing that I also realized in in growing older is the less things I own, the less worries I have. And I'm not talking about like life or death kind of worries, but more the more things you have, the more things. That that's within the vicinity of my eyes, like what I can see, the more I think about different things and do I need it. And the less things I see, the less things I have, the fewer things I need to contemplate on. Um, and then, of course, everything that I do, everything that I have is virtual these days. So everything is in the laptop and accessible from the laptop, which I can bring anywhere. Um, so definitely a good, good idea. Um, on my side, it's fun times with the house. And we renovated a super old house from the late 60s or early 70s. It's been great progress so far, but a lot of surprises along the way. So with the amount of money we spent by now, we could probably have bought a brand new house instead. Uh, but at least here we get the, the nice garden and the location, uh, which we cannot get if we buy a new house, because you can only buy new houses on the outskirts of the outskirts these days. And if you find a plot of land, in a, in a central or a good location, it's, it's going to be five times more expensive. So the surprises in this old house last month was rainwater from the roof went into the pipes and into the ground, as you expect, and then they are supposed to go out into the like the drainage or the sewers or whatever. It did not. So every time it, it rained, it was kind of 
all the rainwater came back through the pipes and landed on the side of the house. So we started seeing water come into the building. So that's awesome. So we had to build what is in Sweden called a stanchista, which I'm not sure about the English word. Basically, a hole in the ground, you put some coarse stones and then some big stones in that. And that's a way for the rainwater to like dispense equally underground uh, and then eventually just leading down to the groundwater levels. So we did that. And another surprise was uh, we had this conservatory room, which is like in Swedish, uh, an utrum, which is kind of like an outdoor experience, but with walls and a roof. We have no ventilation apparently in that area. So we're seeing water literally drip on the inside of the windows now. So my weekend went to fixing that. So I can now call myself a hobby um, handyman or carpenter, which is uh, perhaps not what I want to spend my time on. But at the same time, it's a it's a great experience in how things should not work and then how to fix it. So a lot of Googling and figuring things out. Uh, so good times with the old house. Sounds like fun, but also a little bit frustrating, I'd say. But I, I can assure you that even living in a new house, you have a lot of stuff you need to do on the weekends. Alrighty, so today let's talk about Defender for DevOps. And I recall we mentioned Defender for DevOps during a recent Azure Updates episode. And I think, Toby, you sort of promised that we'll take a look at the service and talk a bit about that. But also, I think more specifically, why would you use this? And perhaps a little bit less about how do you enable this because it's it's one click and then it's enabled. There's not much magic happening in there. But let's first talk about what it is and then why would you need it and what sort of the upsides would, would, would be in here. So, so Toby, if I were to ask you, well, there's Defender for DevOps. Do I need it? What's What sort of is the service all about? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question. And like uh, before we talk about specifically about the service, I want to set the scene a little bit like with the importance of security, because that makes it easy to understand why we might need this. And we've previously we talked about security, security testing, securing your pipelines and repositories. And I know we've written in our blogs about this uh, as well. And you may may not recall uh, discussions that we've had where security is an organization wide responsibility. And additionally, like shifting left and moving security testing and tooling into the early stages of development, help you embrace the mindset of what we call DevSecOps. And we can expand on that a little bit later. So to set the scene, it's for me about a mind shift in not just here's a new tool that you use, but why do we have this tool? And is security really that important? And are there not existing tools for doing that? So I, I really like come back to the idea of the shared responsibility model where customers, they're responsible for securing data, endpoints, accounts, and access management. And this responsibility also includes the security configuration of code repositories, pipelines, agents you have in your CI, CD processes, and more. So again, to set the scene, not talking about technical capabilities, but the responsibilities of security in your organization. So before kind of diving into that, you know, the technology or, or like the reasoning or the specifics about this service, that's kind of how I would paint the picture saying there's a shared responsibility model for security. Microsoft is responsible for securing the cloud, if you will, uh, the data centers and the services themselves and offering the security capabilities for you so you can configure them according to your business justifications and, and business processes. Then it's on you to actually ensure that you configure the security 
according to your business processes, according to your regulatory compliance. So there is that thing with the shared responsibility model that you should keep in mind. So with Defender for Cloud, there is now a preview service or preview section called DevOps Security, uh, which is pretty, pretty cool. Um, so you have some capabilities in there, which is like you get visibility into your DevOps security posture. And DevOps in this case is uh, your GitHub account and repositories and all, all things in there, or Azure DevOps and your repositories and your organizational access and like how, how have you configured security for the organization inside of Azure DevOps? How have you configured your pipelines? Are you running code security scans? Do, did we find anything in those code security scans? So it's a way really to like strengthen your, your cloud resource configuration throughout the dev lifecycle. So again, shifting left means we move security scanning, security testing, security insights left on the timeline. If you think about a line, which is a timeline, the further left you go on that timeline, the earlier it is in the stages. And I think that's important to remember. When Whenever you ha hear someone say, hey, let's shift left with security, that means earlier in the timeline. So the sooner you can get to this, the easier it is going to be to mitigate it. So you don't find it in production and then say, well, we kind of made a mistake here. Now we need to go fix it. But instead you can say, we found that even before production. So that's shifting left. So it's pretty cool. We get these capabilities now built in where we can just go and say, hey, add an environment at GitHub or Azure DevOps. And then you get insights around this. You can see security uh, vulnerabilities either in code or in, in how you configure things. DevOps security results. Like if you have exposed secrets in your code, if you found any open source vulnerabilities, if there's any recommendations you need to take action on around how you configure things, you can see insights in how many repositories you have, how many DevOps repositories or GitHub repositories that you have, and how many like vulnerabilities or exposed secrets or whatever you found across all of them. So I, I took it for a spin. I've been running it for a couple of weeks. It's super cool. Um, and a question that I, I got, I was discussing this internally at Microsoft with a couple of folks because I had some some concerns with some of these things. And and we went on a call and the concerns were not, was not about the technology, but more about customers were asking me, old customers were asking me, like, should we start looking at this? Because we already have tools, right? We already have security tools. We already have this and that. So this is just a... Um, like complementary type of tool set that you can use. But if you already have covered all your ground with security tooling, it, it doesn't replace anything, right? Uh, but I think that's important to keep in mind that the more things we can do from Defender for Cloud with a single pane of glass, the easier it is for us to manage it. So if uh, DevOps security now from Defender for Cloud can cover the same ground that you do with third-party tools, there might be an option to just drop those tools. But before we kind of dive into the scenarios here, one of the things we come back to in that in regards of that discussion is that currently the Defender for DevOps cannot do an AVS or an, an AVR, which is an application vulnerability report. And when I worked a lot with operations and had to prove to customers that we were operating things in a secure way, they also requested an AVR or an application vulnerability report, which is uh, you know, a report that contains an executive summary, a plan for mitigation, whatever we found, how they're categorized, when they will be mitigated. Like there's a lot of stuff that needs to go into it. You cannot currently do that with Defender for DevOps. So with that in mind, I think that's the where I would draw the line. If I were in my previous roles, that's kind of the decision I would have to make. Can it provide me 
a report, an executive summary that I can hand over to the customers. Currently, this cannot, but I will provide you a lot of insights for your security team, for your operational team, for your devs, for everyone internally to take action on and really strengthen the, the security posture. And in doing so, if you have another tool to generate the application security report, that's cool because then that will look better because you already mitigated it. Just some loose thoughts from the top of my mind. Yeah, I, I really like this. And so I'm learning that shifting left is not moving your coffee mug from the right side of your keyboard to the left side <laughs> of your keyboard. On Defender for DevOps, how I see the actual service and the capabilities, I sort of see that as, as a two-part service. So the first one is, is, is what you mentioned, getting the visibility into the whole DevOps security posture and the setup. One of the challenges that I'm seeing with, with companies is that they might have the ops team, the, the IT people operating everything in Azure and, and, and in hybrid and VPNs and everything is top notch. But then when I ask, so what's happening with these VMs and, and these, these resource groups? Oh, it's the developers doing something. We don't really know because they have their repos, they have the things and they run these these black terminals with green text, and we have no idea what they're using, and they're using MacBooks as well. And then you sort of go, well, we need something to get visibility into what the developers are doing. Not that we don't trust them, but we also need to be certain that what they are building and eventually deploying to production is something that can stand our security requirements. So I see Defender for DevOps as a sort of two parts. The first part is whatever you do in Defender for Cloud. When you go to DevOps security, you pull in the repositories from GitHub and, and Azure DevOps, and you start running reports, and you start raising issues and alerts and incidents and whatnot. That sort of ties into the whole ops approach, if you will. But then the second bits I see as something that the developers do as part of their DevSecOps journey, and they use the second bits of the DevOps uh, security capability with the Microsoft Security DevOps command line tool that does things for you when you're building your solution and when you're deploying through your pipeline. So in, in a way, it's, it's like two services in one, and depending if you come from the ops side or the dev side, you see different angles of the service. Am, am I sort of describing this in a way that that you would partially at least agree on this one? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, no, I, I like that distinction. And like, I have a, a couple of favorite use cases top of mind uh, to also like elaborate on how I see this. And because I've used it now for for some of my things running, uh, some things I have running in production as well. Um, so some of the favorite use cases to to kind of tie that back to the circle is a single place to expand on your DevOps. Uh, posture, so like a single pane of glass that we talked about, um, because it exists in Defender for Cloud, which you're already using. And if you're not, you're doing it wrong. Right? There's no way around that. If you're in Azure and you're not using Defender for Cloud, you need to start doing that, right? Because you cannot get the insights without it. Um, and you have the multi-cloud experience as opposed to having a unique solution for each and every platform. Because uh, a lot of companies, uh, you know, myself included, in the past. Uh, had some code in and, and repositories in GitHub, other in Azure DevOps, maybe even you know other third parties. But currently, these are the two supported. Uh, so a single pane of, pane of glass for those. But I also have um, a use case where you have this discoverability with automated inventory that you get with uh, Defender for DevOps. 
so you can find rogue code bases. And this is something that I saw a lot in the past, and I see that still um, in, in areas and, and when talking to customers. And one of the things that, that you keep seeing is like anyone can stand up a repository. If you're a contributor to a, an Azure DevOps organization, you might have the permissions to create a new repository. And then all of a sudden you have code proliferation. You just create new code and someone commits more code. And then like with this kind of automated inventory and discoverability, you can quickly identify when new repositories or projects are misconfigured. Because if you create them and you have the capability to just create things and you have a huge organization, you might not get those insights easily. With Defender for DevOps, you can discover those things. So it brings you the inventory. So that's super cool. And then the other kind of use case that I really like is the security scanning of infrastructure as code and container images. So if you can enable IAC templates and container images um, to be scanned to kind of minimize cloud misconfigurations. So you can discover things in QA and staging before you actually land in production, which you know the entire thing about shifting less, uh, left is about. So there's a couple of things that you can do, like thinking from the business cases or use cases. So again, a, a lot of thoughts in this. Uh, I've spent some time with this, and, and in my previous roles, I worked a lot on security and compliance and DevOps and DevSecOps and these things. So I, I have a lot of ideas here. Uh, some of the bits that I'm seeing, and I've been using this for a couple of days now, but mostly with my small repos where I might be the only contributor. So I'm sort of already expecting what I'm about to receive through Defender for DevOps. Uh, one thing that, that surprises me a little bit, but at the same time it doesn't, is that if you want to get more insight beyond just the visibility on your repos, it relies on some of the capabilities like the secrets scanning to your repos. It, it relies on capabilities on GitHub, meaning you need the GitHub advanced security license. And that's about $21 per user per month. And not all organizations have this already. So if you don't have this, and then you deploy Defender for DevOps, and then you actually go to the workbook that gives you a nice graphical overview of everything you have in all of the repos, some of those graphics or, or bars and charts will be empty because it says, well, you don't have this capability enabled, so we cannot get that data to the workbook. So perhaps something to keep in mind that the Defender for DevOps, it relies on what capabilities you have on the other side, instead of getting everything and doing something magically itself, because it's actually getting that data that's already available on the GitHub side. Yeah, and, I, and that's a great point. And uh, I had a discussion around that as well, and I said, well, why why don't we just have the same experience on Azure DevOps and GitHub? And it's because exactly that. In GitHub, you have Dependabot, and you have the security and secrets code scanning already existing as part of the offerings at GitHub. So instead of kind of reinventing the wheel, they want to just repurpose what is already there. So that's a great idea. Uh, but yeah, you, you might have to check out the licensing there and see uh, you know, how, how you or what you need to enable to, to get the full support of that, because otherwise you would kind of run the same type of scanning yourself that GitHub already does, and that doesn't make sense because GitHub is on top of that game. So um, good point to to check out the licensing on that. Indeed. So configuring, I'd, I'd say, as long as you have permission to, to access those repos, and, and as an ops person, you should have permission, regardless if they're on GitHub or Azure DevOps. Then 
the scanning takes place, and for me it was almost immediate. It took like a minute, and I had 36 repos available and visible. And the workbook, you have to uh, get that yourself from GitHub and deploy that to whatever resource group on Azure. And then you can really start getting this inventory and visibility into everything that you have. So I, I feel that's sort of the easy side. But then if we, if we focus a bit more on the DevSecOps approach, meaning what the developers are doing, because whatever I'm doing on Defender for Cloud, that doesn't really matter to any of the developers. Before we sort of talk about the CLI a bit, Toby, you mentioned the DevSecOps and the shifting left, but is DevSecOps simply a DevOps culture and, and a process where we inject a little bit of security in there? Yeah, that's actually a pretty good question. And like, there's a lot of answers to what DevSecOps is. But to me, it's the unification of people and process and, and expanding on the DevOps process. So just to take that one notch back to DevOps, we still see that a lot of companies are not embracing DevOps. They say they are because they use Git or they are using Agile or they're using Scrum. And then they, they say that they, they're using DevOps. They're not. DevOps is about people and having people across all the layers, like all the devs to the testers, to the operational specialists running uh, your cloud working together and about bringing developers insights from production, right? And we see still in a lot of places, there's a very, like there's a brick wall between production and development for a lot of companies. Where a true DevOps, a true DevOps culture means that you operate what you build in a sense. You might not have control to make changes in production, but you should have the insights of the telemetry and the exceptions and the things coming back to, for example, application insights or log analytics workspaces. If you use Azure Monitor, you should be able to see that data coming back from the application that you built. You should not have to rely on someone in production exporting some data or an exception or some something to you and then hand that over to the developers. The developers should, you know, in a sense, operate what you build or have insights into what happens in production. So with that mindset, DevSecOps uh, is the same thing where the developers should be aware of security exceptions, security reports, uh, things coming both from production, but also from the testing environments and the dev environments. Because in the past, we saw developers, they did their thing on their machine, works on my machine, committed to the source code repository, and then I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. And then it's someone else's responsibility, right? And you plug that into production or you run it through testing. And then during testing, you figure, oh, we found a security issue. Now we have to go back. With shifting left, we want to highlight those things as soon as possible. And with DevSecOps, we want to enable developers to get security insights as early as possible as well. So security should not be a specific team that is the only team with insights about these things. Everyone should have the insights because the more transparent you are with the issues you have in your code and your applications and your infrastructure, the better you're going to be at fixing it. Because if you kind of hide that to a specific team, to only your operational team, or to only someone operating your soccer or security operating center, then you're hiding away the fact that there are things you need to mitigate sooner. So again, shifting left, make it more transparent, ensure that developers and everyone from the point of development onward get insights into your security posture. Uh, give them access to the report in Defender for DevOps. Give them access to the security vulnerability reports. Give them access to whatever happens in 
uh, with the telemetry and metrics. If if there is no sensitive or PII data from customers that is flowing in there, which is another discussion we might have an entire episode on, I think. What kind of data do you log and what kind of metrics are you logging? Avoid PII at all costs, unless that goes into a specific bucket that you can control the access of. But for metrics, application exceptions and application logs and all these things, which should not contain PII, it should contain metrics and usage and exceptions and how things are happening. That should be uh, granted for all the developers to see, even from production. Then you have a true DevOps culture and adding security to that so they get insights to security exceptions, security insights, security reports. That is a DevSecOps culture. And there's a lot of opinions on that. This is my take. Um, I have worked with that in operation with a distributed team across the globe. Uh, so my experience is like that. And I'm saying this based on that experience. But again, this will differ from company to company and depending on who, you know, what lens you're looking through, what role you had uh, or, or have in your company, of course. The question was short, what is DevSecOps? My answer was a little bit longer because it, again, consultant answer. Like every episode, we come back to the consultant answer, which is it depends. And of course, it depends on which lens you're wearing when you're when you're talking about this. So my hat, the lens I'm wearing is as a business executive, as a leader of my organization and responsible and accountable for security operations and all the things that I was accountable for in the past. This was on my table to ensure that we follow the stringent rules of this. So the more transparency you can bring back to your team, the quicker you're going to find and fix things. Because otherwise, you're going to end up with a huge pile of ba in the backlog saying, we need to mitigate these security things. You don't want that. You want to fix them as early as possible. Again, shifting left. I am learning so much. And I'm sure after we are done with recording, I will do lunch ops just to digest everything. And, and don't forget to shift left. left. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so with DevSecOps and specifically now for Defender for DevOps, the sort of second capability here is the... Uh, the command line application, Microsoft Security DevOps, that requires you to use YAML uh, to describe the pipeline and, and how do you actually deploy. And I really, 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 really dislike YAML. <laughs> is that something you eventually get to love or is it something that everybody just passionately hates? So let me rephrase that question because you know the answer to this. Do you love XML? There's your answer. <laughs> it's it's just it's the same thing, right? YAML for me is just yet another markup language, which is funnily what it actually means. YAML means yet another markup language, and it is just another markup language. I don't care if you do this in JSON or XML or YAML or you know if you do it in all DDF files. Do you remember those Diamond oh, yeah, Directive yeah. files for SharePoint that we used to deploy web parts with? Ridiculous, but you kind of learned the ropes because this needed to be in that specific format and that's it. For me, it's about business case. I do not care if you're writing in C Sharp or JavaScript. I do not care if this file is in YAML or XML or JSON. You, oh, you can hear here that you push the button now. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going off. I do not care. I care about the business justification, the business case. If YAML takes care of this so I can run code security and enable a DevSecOps culture in my organization, that's it. I'm going to do it. I do not care if you like YAML or not. I do not care if you like JSON files or not. Similarly, I don't care if you like XML or XSLT to transform your XML that we worked a lot with in the SharePoint days. Um, 
I don't care. What I do care about is what am I accountable for? Well, ensuring that we have proper security governance, ensuring that we have a good security posture, ensuring that we have a culture where we find and fix issues along security as early as possible. With that in mind, I don't care how if you use this or that uh, language definition file. So again, a long answer to your short question. Do you learn to love YAML? The answer is I don't care if you do. Just get the job done. That's my honest opinion on anything relating to these topics. Because I I found myself in the past being a proponent of specific languages or frameworks or files or formats. But at the end of the day, it's all about does it make sense for the business? Is my application going to be better off if I chose JSON over YAML? Probably not. Right? If you can get the job done in both, sure, it might be easier to do it in one or the other. But at the end of the day, do whatever works and make sure that we get uh, the expected outcome of the work. And then how you get that done, I don't care. Thanks. I hate it already. <laughs> but eventually, I might learn to dislike it slightly less than today. <laughs> the security DevOps CLI, the command line tool that you will then integrate through YAML to your pipelines, it seems to require the GitHub Advanced Security License. So that's perhaps something to pay attention to if you're planning on deploying this in a pilot or even in a production environment. One thing that I couldn't find is the pricing for Defender for DevOps. So the preview, as it is today, that is free. It doesn't cost you anything. But I couldn't find the official pricing on Azure Pricing Calculator or the Defender for DevOps product page or the Microsoft Learn content. So perhaps we will get the pricing eventually. So I have no idea how it would be based, but probably along the lines of the Azure Defender capabilities, which is usually either a fixed price per month per resource or a certain amount of money per X amount of transactions or actions. And then you sort of estimate through that and, and build your assessment on how much you're willing to pay for that. Yeah, all righty. All righty. I think that was that was everything we had for Defender for DevOps. So it's early days. Uh, and Toby, you mentioned a lot of good information that I'm sort of hoping that we'll eventually perhaps see in Defender for DevOps. But I also feel this is not a service that you simply enable and call it a day. This is one more tool, one more capability to make your security posture better, but also to step take take one step further on the DevSecOps journey at the same time. Alrighty, the last bit, the unexpected question. And this week, Toby, it is your turn to ask me. All right. Um, simple question, but the the results here can vary, of course. Um, what are the unwritten rules? of where you work? A good question. Uh, do not love YAML for sure. But <laughs> uh, beyond that, our team in, in my company, it's distributed. So more or less, we are all based in the same country in Finland. People do travel quite a bit and they work remotely whenever they like. Uh, we don't have an office, so nobody arrives at an office in the morning, but we work with our customers sometimes from their offices. So perhaps some of the key assumptions or the unwritten rules that we have is that 
you just have to get the stuff done that you agree with a customer. And if you need help, please do do so kindly and ask as soon as possible. Because what I've seen over the years, and I'm not referring to, to my current company, but what I've seen over the years is that you have somebody working remotely and they're struggling with a technical issue or deployment or, or project. And they spend 40 hours trying to sort of hierarchically trying to resolve the issue. Then finally they ask somebody on Teams, hey, does anybody know anything about this? And there's a colleague who says, yeah, I fixed this like a year ago. So you just need to do X. And then you go, well, why didn't you ask before? Because we could have saved 40 hours, perhaps on the customer's commitment or at least on the internal effort. So I sort of try to be active on that sense that we have people who have been working in IT for 20, 30 years, and they know a lot, but still sort of being humble enough to say, well, I have no idea how this works. So can somebody show me the light? Because you've got to know everything about everything. So perhaps the unwritten rule we have is that please be vocal, be active, ask questions, ask for help. And nothing should be taken personally. And that's often, often a soft bit to internalize. So sometimes you're, you're crunched on time. So you just type something really rapidly, really quickly. And somebody is reading that differently. And you go, well, I didn't really mean it like that, but I can see your point. <laughs> so a couple of sort of lessons learned at the same time. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. And, and, and to your point about don't be afraid to ask questions. I've been in the field for 20 years worked as a customer to Microsoft for 20 years in various capacity. Now I joined Microsoft and there's so much to learn. I am now known in my team as the question machine 2000, right? Because I'm asking a lot of questions. And, and you know, I've been in, a, I've worked for 20 years in the business and I'm asking questions every single day because it's not about what you don't know. It's about how to learn what you need to know. And to that point, uh, just to round that off, I, uh, I had a teacher in fourth grade, I think, who said, if you ask a question now, you might feel stupid in front of class for the moment. If you don't ask your questions, you might be stupid for the rest of your life. And that stuck with me. Uh, it was a bit brutal statement because I he asked me, hey, Tobias, do you have a question? I'm like, nah, I don't want to ask in front of the class. And, and he said that to me. And I'm like, wow, that was so impactful. I remember to this day, I remember you know, what clothes the teacher was wearing, because I, I have this vivid uh, experience in my memory from this day, and, and that stuck with me. So I do ask questions, and I, I want to say that out loud to anyone tuning in. If, if you're a junior um, in the business, if you're getting started, or if you're seasoned, it does not matter. Right? Ask a question um, if you have something on your mind, and just be elaborate about it. And, what I found out and what me, my team found out is the more questions we ask, the more things we discover that we need to understand or that we need to unpack with our processes or how we do things or, and you know, it's a question is not about what you don't know. A question is, it is about how can we learn together? So, yeah, um, I didn't want to take over your answer on your question. I just wanted to have that said. <laughs> Great insights. We have to do an episode one day on lessons learned working 20 years in IT. Alrighty. Oh, yeah. Thank you for tuning in. We'll have a fresh episode for you again next week on Wednesday.
All right, see you then.